all over the world this morning, Christians are gathering to worship God together. And, and you know, many of them are meeting in church buildings that look kind of like this. Others are meeting in gymnasiums or in theaters, or still others are meeting in people's houses. Now, here in America, we are very blessed that we have the freedom to gather and worship in God. Because there are many other Christians, millions actually, in other parts of the world who are gathering today to worship God. But in those locations, it is not legal. And so for them, they live under the constant threat that as they are gathered at any moment, police could break in and arrest them all because they are simply gathering to worship God. But this all begs the question of why do Christians gather to worship God together? Why, why do Christians join together and meet up in order to worship God like this? Or to personalize the question a little bit more, why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? Um, this why question is a very important question. You think about children. As children develop, typically around age three or four, they go through this stage where they ask, why this, why that? It's always why, why, why? But even though we may outgrow that stage, we should never shy away from asking why. Because why, that question is seeking a reason for what we do. Or it wants to know why things are the way they are. And part of living a purposeful, intentional life is having a why for what we do. Now, when it comes to church, many people have lost their sense of why. And when someone loses their why for why they might be involved in church, they may still be involved for a while. But frequently then they're simply going through the motions. Their heart is not engaged that much. They're doing it just because, you know, that's what they've always done. Or for other people, once they lose that sense of why with church, you know, why come at all anymore? So they stop coming. I think of when I was growing up. I didn't have much of a why for church. But I went most Sundays because that's what my family did. I was expected to go. But for me, church didn't mean very much. I didn't like singing. I would daydream through the sermons as much as I could to make them pass quicker. For me, the best part of Sunday mornings was going out for pizza after church. And then I got to college, and I continued to go to church for a few months because, you know, that's what you should do. But I saw the church primarily as a social gathering. But I thought, you know, I have good friends outside of church. It's much easier to sleep in on Sunday mornings, so I did what a lot of other people do, just stop going. And it wasn't until a couple years later when a friend introduced me to a personal relationship with God through Jesus that church began to take on a meaning that was much more significant for me again. And this morning we're going to look at that meaning, that question of why is it so important to gather together to worship God? I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are in a series right now that is called Habits of Grace. Habits of Grace are talking about these practical patterns that we can implement in our lives to help us grow in enjoying God and in glorifying God. And today we're talking about the topic of gathering together as Christians to worship God. And this idea of gathering together to worship God is called corporate worship. It's gathering together in corporate worship. And and today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at one specific instance of corporate worship back in the early church, which still has a lot of relevance for us today. 
So let me pray for us, then we'll dig into Acts chapter 2. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you've opened the way through faith in Jesus for us to be adopted into your family. That makes us your sons and your daughters through faith in Christ. And what a blessing that is. And Lord, we recognize that this is only because of your grace and your mercy. But as we are adopted into your family, that also makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. So thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather this morning as a Freedmen's family, a church family gathered here. And I pray that you will open our eyes in fresh ways today through Scripture to the significance of gathering together, the importance of gathering to worship you. And I pray that the result of our time together today will be that we grow in enjoying you and in glorifying you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. Actually, a little background before that. This is taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, Just some context. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, has just been preaching a sermon to a large crowd of people there in Jerusalem. And about 3,000 of them came to faith in Christ. And so what we're going to read now follows directly from that, verse 42. These people, they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So in this passage, I want to look at four key aspects of worship gatherings. Aspects that are still very relevant for us here today. And the first one we see here is the importance of biblical teaching. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, apostle is another title for Jesus' disciples. And you think about how special that would have been to hear teaching directly from someone who had been with Jesus, Peter or John or Matthew. That would have been amazing, wouldn't it? But we have to recognize we don't have the apostles with us any longer. But we have a resource that is at least as good, probably better than having an actual apostle here, and that is the Bible. Second Timothy chapter 3 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we have this resource of the Bible to guide us, to teach us. And in in corporate worship services, um, biblical teaching is important. Now, earlier, a few weeks ago in this Habits of Grace series, we talked about the importance of reading the Bible for ourselves. We talked about the value of meditating on Scripture, even of memorizing verses from the Bible. These are all very important habits of grace that help us to grow. But there also is the reality that at times, even as we're reading the Bible, there are parts that just confuse us, that we're not quite sure what in the world is going on here, or that we just read it and we're just kind of blah. And so that's where biblical teaching, in in the context of a, a church setting like this, is so valuable. On Sunday mornings, I mean, I've put an effort through the week to try to bring a message from the Bible that explains what's going on here. It may provide some historical context. It helps us see what the importance of this passage is and helps us to apply it to our lives. 
And that's, there are so many benefits that come from receiving biblical teaching like that. I think back to a few weeks ago, we had a man named John Payne here. He was our district superintendent, and he was preaching through the Lord's Prayer from the books of Matthew and Luke. And it was interesting how after those services, I heard the number of people talking about how valuable that was for them. And each of the individuals who were sharing this with me, they were people who had grown up reciting the Lord's Prayer every single week in church. They could, I think, quote it in their sleep. And I'm not joking. I bet that they knew it well enough that in their dreams, they could recite the Lord's Prayer verbatim. But they were talking about how it came to life in a new way as John was unpacking it verse by verse by verse. I mean, they were seeing things in there, significance they had never seen before, even though they had known it by heart for their entire lives. And that is the power of biblical teaching in a setting of corporate worship, is that it can help us to learn more about God, learn more about Scripture. And so biblical teaching is one of the key aspects of corporate worship. There's also the aspect here in this passage of togetherness. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And then in verse 44 it says all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So you can hear the incredible togetherness that this church fellowship had with one another. They were enjoying life together. So one of the things we understand biblically is that Christians are not meant to be Lone Ranger Christians. We are not to have a purely private faith. It's tempting to say, well, I'm fine, just me and Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is to be personal, but not private. We are called to walk alongside one another in, in following him. Now, in today's world, it's easier than ever before to try to have a privatized faith where we're trying to grow just on our own. I think of just our culture of individualism, and I think of the fact that the internet makes podcasts available of quality biblical teaching. So, you know, it can be tempting to think, you know, it's nice just to sit in the comfort of my house or while I'm driving or, or you know, listening to the earbuds and just get my biblical content that way. And by all means, keep doing that if you're doing that. But understand, that does not replace the value of gathering with other Christians and worshiping God. There's to be a sense of togetherness. I mean, next week we're going to talk more about the value of relationships uh, with other Christians to help us to grow. But even in this topic of worship services, there should be a sense of togetherness even surrounding our gathering here right now. I think of sporting events. I think about watching the Packers. If you want to watch the Packers play, you could watch in the comfort of your home. I mean, it could just be you and the TV watching the Packers. And that's probably going to be nice and comfortable, uh, easy. But you compare that to going to Lambeau Field and watching them in person. And in going to Lambeau Field, it's not going to be as easy. And it's not going to be as comfortable, especially if it's Dece- December and everything is completely frozen. But the reality is there's a power that comes from being present with other Packers fans there right where it's taking place. There's a power there. There's a camaraderie that, you know, you may or may not know others there in the stadium. Maybe you know a few, but most you probably don't. But even, even among the strangers, there's a camaraderie because you're experiencing the game together. And as we come together here on a Sunday morning, there's a camaraderie even here in this room of we are experiencing the same things at the same time. 
There's power that comes from learning together and laughing together. There's power that comes from singing together. You don't get that if you're just listening to a podcast at home. For me, I enjoy sitting up in the front, especially in larger services like Christmas and Easter, but, you know, even the typical Sunday morning, because you can hear the power of the voices all joining together coming from behind you. There's that power of togetherness. We are a church family, and when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's like a gathering of the extended family. And so what I want to encourage you to do is not just breeze in and out of here on a Sunday morning, but really make an opportunity to experience more togetherness, more relationship with others, even here on a Sunday morning. I mean, maybe, maybe that means sticking around afterwards for food and fellowship hall, and I'll tell you today the food is very tasty. It is every Sunday, but today is, is that week of the month where it's nice, warm, homemade stuff that's, that's really good. So stop out there. Tasty stuff. Talk with someone in the lobby. Turn around to the pew behind, or in, behind you or in front of you. Meet someone new, perhaps. I mean, go to a class between services. For me, it warms my heart when I see people talking with each other. Because it shows the togetherness, the building of relationships. It warms my heart sometimes after a service when I see people sitting in a pew, not only talking, but praying with each other. It's an indicator of the togetherness of a church family. And so we see that parts of corporate worship are biblical teaching, togetherness. Thirdly, we see in this passage the Lord's Supper. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now this breaking of bread, that, that phrase has a double meaning. On the one hand, it can simply refer to sharing a meal together. And in fact, we see that a little bit later in verse 46 when it says that they were breaking bread in their homes. And there is still something very powerful relationally about sharing a meal. But this idea of the breaking of bread can also refer to the Lord's Supper. You think to uh, the Last Supper, which was the night before Jesus was crucified. And he, and he said, this is my body broken for you, referring to bread. He took a cup and said, this is my blood shed for you, um, and so what we see is that this idea of the breaking of bread can also refer to the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, back in biblical times and in, in the early church era, <clears throat> there was actually a connection between eating a meal and celebrating the Lord's Supper. I mean, you had it right there at the Last Supper that I just referred to of Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the end of a meal that he and his disciples were sharing. And it was frequently that way in the early church as well, where they would be celebrating a meal together, eating together, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper at that same time. And so we see here that the, the Lord's Supper is a valuable part of what happens when we gather to worship as well. And here at Freedoms, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of each month to remember the importance of the death of Christ. Because he said, and when instituting the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. We'll be getting in a few weeks to the importance of the Lord's Supper. That is one of the habits of grace we will be looking at the final aspect of corporate worship we see in this passage is the aspect of prayer. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You know, praying together, whether in small groupings or whether it, just during a worship service, is a powerful way with other people to turn our focus to God, to bring our petitions before him, to be praising him, to be thanking him, just to get that focus onto God. And 
And we look in this passage and we see in verse 42 that the early church was devoting themselves to these things. They were devoting themselves. It said later they were doing this day by day. This was a habit that they had implemented in their lives. And again, the powerful thing about habits is they can transform us. And so as they are meeting together, they are being transformed from the inside out to enjoy God and to glorify him more. And you can't help but see the joy in this passage. It says in verse 43 that they had the awe that was coming into their souls. A little bit later in the passage, it talks about their glad and generous hearts. They are truly enjoying each other and enjoying God and in the process bringing him great glory. So these are four key aspects of corporate worship, things that we try to implement here in the 21st century at Freedom's. But if you've noticed, I started this message with a question of why do we gather and worship? And I don't think we fully answered that question yet. So why do we gather here together to worship God? You know, that, that's a key question that I think we need to come to grips with. And, and there are many different ways you could word a response to that question, but here is my stab at it. I believe that we gather here to worship God because corporate worship fuels a lifestyle of worship. Corporate worship, as we're gathered here like this, it fuels a lifestyle of worship. Biblically, worship can be both an event and it ought to be a lifestyle. And they really fuel each other. It's an event and a lifestyle. What, what is worship? I think that's a key question. What is worship? Worship literally means to, to give something worth, to say, you know what, that thing is worthy of my devotion and my attention and my passion. Humans, everyone worships. The only question is what we worship. We are called to worship God, and, and worshiping God is the most satisfying thing we can ever experience in our lives, really. And so corporate worship, we gather because that fuels an entire lifestyle of worship that extends beyond this hour on Sunday morning to the rest of our weeks and even the rest of our lives. And I want to talk for a minute just about three different ways that corporate, corporate worship fuels an entire lifestyle of worship. And one way is by refocusing our gaze on God's glory. It refocuses our gaze on God's glory. Yesterday afternoon, I was sitting in my office and working on this sermon. And my wife, Shelly, sent me a text of our cat. I don't even know how our cat is sitting like that, but she said that he was sitting like that for a while. His name is Buttercup. And he, he sits over there, I guess occasionally like that. It looks like a human standing up. Um, usually with his paws up on the windowsill because there is a bird feeder right outside that window. And he is gazing at those birds. He sometimes will be there hours during the day focused in with laser-like focus on those birds. He wants those birds. He can't get to them through the window, but he wants them. He's dreaming about them. And, I mean, you see this focus right there. He is, he's intently zoomed in on those birds. And that's a picture of what happens when our heart is captured by something. Now, the issue is we frequently don't have that type of laser-like focus on our, on our focus on God. Now, again, the idea of focusing on God is more metaphorical than this because we frequently aren't literally looking at him. But we're talking about still the focus of our lives is on him. The focus of our hearts is captivated by him. Whereas Buttercup is focused in on those birds, we frequently have a very wavering and distracted focus on God. I think about how through the course of the week leading up to each Sunday, 
We may be distracted by sin or temptation. We may be distracted by negative things that have happened to us that, you know, we just face some hardships in our life, sometimes big, sometimes uh, smaller, that leave us frustrated or discouraged or worried um, or just worn down. We bring that level of distraction into our Sundays. Sometimes we are distracted by good things. You know, blessings that God gives us. And maybe along the line we get so focused on the good things that we forget that those gifts came from a giver. We forget to give him the thanks for them. Or those good things, they make us so busy that that busyness distracts us. Or those good things get elevated in our hearts to become God things. We begin to worship those things. They become idols. And so there are many different things that can distract us from focusing on God. And that's one of the, that points to one of the values of gathering here on Sunday mornings is that it refocuses our gaze on God's glory. It helps to turn our attention back to him. And that's the power of having the weekly rhythm of gathering together as God's people. Is that no matter what else went on during the week, we always have this time set aside that at least once a week, we will have our focus turned back to him and his glory. And I, and I think especially the power of music to do this. I mean, even thinking about the songs that we sang this morning, there's something very powerful about singing that engages our heart, engages our soul, and is able to help us to express praise of God. And so one of the, the big things that corporate worship helps us do is to focus our gaze on God's glory. Another thing that it helps with is to reform our minds with God's will. Reform our minds with God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you, this is Paul speaking, he's saying, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So this verse, Romans 12, 1, is talking about the lifestyle of worship that we ought to live. Where, you know, every part of our lives is surrendered to him. That as we're going through our work and our family life and our hobbies and all kinds of other stuff, Everything we do is as a worship offering to God to bring him glory, to enjoy him more. Now listen to the next verse, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so what we see here is the, one of the main means by which we grow in a lifestyle of worship. It's by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, and that's one of the purposes of gathering here on Sunday mornings for worship services is to have our mind renewed and reformed in accordance with God's will. There are a number of different ways that can happen. I've heard many people talk about the value of the children's message and teaching them or inspiring them even if they're decades older than those who typically sit up here. I think of how music can reform our minds as well, especially because the power of music is to stick in our minds and drive truths home we otherwise may miss. But the primary way that corporate worship can reform our minds is through the Bible, through biblical teaching. Now, I'm going to say something right now that maybe sounds shocking, but I believe it. Here it is. It's that I do not expect you to remember everything I say on a Sunday morning. I don't. I don't expect you to remember everything I say on a Sunday morning. And that's not, that's not designed to be an excuse to completely tune me out. 
But what it is is simply an acknowledgement of reality. You know what? I don't remember everything I say on a Sunday morning. You asked me what was the main point of last week's sermon. I was the one who gave it twice in services, wrote it, practiced it before the services. I would have to work really hard to remember what the main point of last week's sermon was. And if I struggle with that, I don't expect you to remember every single word I say on Sunday mornings. But that does not mean that biblical teaching or sermons are irrelevant or impotent to affect our lives. Because what we have to understand is the cumulative effect of receiving biblical teaching and corporate worship over the period of months and years. Because even though you may not be able to look back and remember that much in terms of specific phrases or statements that were said on Sunday mornings during sermons, there will be a cumulative effect that builds over time. It reshapes you from the inside out. It reforms your mind in accordance with God's will. Now, with that in mind, with talking about the importance of um, the cumulative effect of growing and internalizing God's word, I want to just give you a little hint that can help with, with internalizing God's word during sermons. And that's to take notes during sermons. To take notes. Let me give you three benefits of taking notes during sermons. One is that it helps keep you engaged. Because otherwise it's so easy for your mind to wander off into la-la land. But if you're taking notes, it helps you remain engaged. There's, and the second point and the second reason why it's beneficial is it helps you to retain things better. There's some sort of really powerful connection between our hand as we write things and our mind to help us to remember it. Retention rate goes up significantly when you write things down. Even if you discard your notes as soon as you get home, you will remember what was said better if you write it down. And the third reason why writing it down is better is what happens if you don't discard your notes. Because if you keep them, it gives you a resource in the future to refer back to what was said. Because you may not remember exactly what was said, but if you write it down, it's right there. Now, if you do want to try to take notes, let me give you one other hint that I found very helpful. And it's the value of having a notebook or a journal to take your notes in. These are a couple journals that I've used over the years. I mean, they're both filled with sermon notes. I have another one that's partially filled right now. But these, again, have notes from sermons and conferences from throughout many, many years. And there's value to having this all in one place. I mean, in the the bulletins, we provide a note-taking sheet. By all means, this is better than nothing. But one of the challenges of this is that if you are faithful to take notes on these things week in, week out, they accumulate. And they end up frequently filling Bibles. You get a Bible full of these sheets of paper. And then finally you decide, I need to clean out my Bible, declutter a little bit. And then what do you do with them? Someone after first service said, well, I actually did pull a bunch of these out of my Bible this last week and found a drawer that I don't use much, and I put them in there, because that way I'll have them. But still, they're in a drawer somewhere. And, and, and so anyway, I mean, you can do this, but if you want to go back in the future and remember, okay, there was a sermon back in this series, or maybe, you know, back in the early part of 2018, and I want to remember what was said. What are you going to do? Just flip through a whole bunch of these things and try to find it? Or you can have them written down in a notebook or journal and then be able to go back and refer to it that way. And so that's just a practical hint uh, that can help with retaining and internalizing 
uh, the biblical content of what is in sermons. And so, so in terms of growing in this lifestyle of worship, corporate worship services help us by refocusing our gaze on God's glory, by reforming our minds in accordance with God's will, and finally, by refueling our hearts with God's grace. And we need this because, you know, going through the week, you face hard things. I do too. I mean, we face things that discourage us and frustrate us. Uh, we, we face also just expectations that wear on us. Or we live in a world where we constantly feel like we need to be performing a certain way or live up to other people's opinions and expectations. And coming to a worship service to be reminded of God's grace can be like refueling our souls and our hearts. Refueling us as we remember and are reminded of God's grace as we sing or through children's message or through sermons or through just talking or praying with someone else. These are ways that corporate worship services can help fuel a lifestyle of worship. And again, this is a powerful habit. In many ways, being involved in corporate worship services is the most important habit of grace that there is. In part because of how it pulls in so many other habits of grace. I mean, you saw right in this passage, you have biblical intake Going, taking place, which is a habit of grace. You have fellowship, which we'll talk about next week. It's another habit of grace. You have the Lord's Supper. It's a habit of grace we'll talk about in a few weeks. Praying together. Gathering together to worship God pulls together so many different habits of grace. And there's a reason why it says in Hebrews, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but rather encourage one another. Do not give up meeting together. You know, that the temptation to, to stop meeting together as Christians was relevant back in the first century, just like it is still today. Do not give up meeting together. But if we are able to meet together to worship God together on a consistent basis, it's a habit that transforms us over time from the inside out. But one of the things you must understand is that even though corporate worship is important, it should not and really cannot stand alone. We shouldn't be people who, this is our only connection with the church family or with the means of spiritual growth through the course of a week. A.W. Tozier was a, uh, a pastor back in the mid-1900s. And he said, If you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. If you will not worship God seven days a week, you cannot and do not worship God one day a week. Because worship as a lifestyle is connected to what takes place here on Sunday mornings. Because it's, it's, he's saying it's practically impossible to come in here and to truly worship God from our hearts if we have not been devoted to him at all through the course of the week. We may come in here, you might have some warm, fuzzy feelings, we might get sentimental, we might have emotions flowing, we might learn some good things. But frequently then it's going to be more going through the motions because there's meant to be a connection between what takes place here and what takes place out there through the course of the week. Gathering together is to fuel a lifestyle of worship, the lifestyle of worship through the course of the week as we live for God's glory in our workplaces, in our, jo- in our homes, in our hobbies. That's meant to fuel then what takes place back here as well. Now, I want to dig in just for the last couple of minutes on, on one other aspect of how corporate worship fuels a lifestyle of worship. And it's taking the next step to understand that a lifestyle of worship causes us to glorify God 
and by enjoying him. To glorify God by enjoying him. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism from hundreds of years ago was a way to help people remember biblical truths. And it started out by saying, what is the chief end of man? That's asking, what's, what's the purpose of life? It says the chief end of man, our purpose as humans is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our focus here in the Habits of Grace series. We want to implement these practices to help us to enjoy God and to glorify him. Now, John Piper, who's a pastor up in Minneapolis, along with a number of other pastors, have taken this Westminster Catechism and kind of tweaked it just a little bit. And John Piper says that, you know what, you could also say the chief end of man, our purpose, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Because when we truly enjoy something, it brings glory to that thing. And the best way that we can glorify God, which is also the most satisfying way for us, is to truly enjoy him. And so that is the goal of these habits of grace. That's the goal of why we gather together to help us to grow in a lifestyle of worship that causes us to glorify God by enjoying him. And you see that taking place right here in this passage. The people, they were filled with awe. They had glad and generous hearts as they, in verse 47, were praising God and having favor with all the people. And it says, the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. You know, that's a picture of what happens when, when you have corporate worship and a lifestyle worship converging together in joy and in glorifying God. The best way that we can make the gospel attractive to people, the best way we can point people to Jesus is by enjoying God. Because if we're enjoying God, it just overflows from us and it makes people want to know, you know what, where do you get that joy? It comes from him. And so I pray that we will be faithful in corporate worship. I recognize that we have a lot of factors in this world that pull us away from that, not least of which is busyness, which we talked about last week. It's so easy to get busy, and even though we still want to be committed to God and church, to get pulled away, and we have to be careful with that because our habits shape us. And if we make a habit of pulling away from gathering together with other Christians, that's going to be shaping our heart in a way that pulls us away from God. But if we're able to engage in the variety of habits of grace, they can help us to, to grow in a lifestyle of worship that truly glorifies God by enjoying Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again that you make a way for us to enjoy you, to know you, to glorify you. There's nothing in this world that compares to knowing you. And Lord, we confess that it is easy for us to get caught up in, in busyness and other factors that pull our attention off you. Um, Lord, we're thankful, that, though, that we ha- can have a church family even here, right here in, in Ozaki County in Port Washington who can support us, who can encourage us. And Lord, I pray that in line with Hebrews 10.25, that we will not give up meeting together as some are in the habit, as some are in the habit of doing, but that we will be encouraging each other in the process that we'll grow in enjoying you and in glorifying you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.